Father, I pray this morning as we come before you and we look at your word, we especially this passage in the book of Revelation is fantastic. Like literally, it is fantastical. It, it, it's beyond our imagination almost if it, wouldn't, it wasn't recorded. And so I pray this morning you would help us to see clearly what you intend here. I pray for those who have yet to believe the gospel that you would open their eyes to see it. I pray for those who have believed the gospel that you would motivate them to share it. I pray for myself that you be in my head and in my thinking, in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen and amen. Well, this week, I was at a, um, a preaching conference in San Diego. And we got to the preaching conference. It was with a, with a mega pastor who's not from our tradition. Um, and there was 24 guys. And I dreaded the first five minutes of that thing because I knew what he would do. I suspected that what he would do, since it was a relatively small thing, is that he would go around the room and say, so, it's a preaching conference. Tell us what you're all preaching. And besides the fact that I was one of the only Presbyterians there, I was sitting almost at the very end, and so it was sort of something like John, 1 Corinthians, John, 1 Corinthians, John, 1 Corinthians, Romans, John, 1 Corinthians, John, Romans, uh, Genesis, Revelation. And in fact, when it got to me, he said, so what are you preaching? Where are you from? What are you preaching? I said, I'm Presbyterian, and I'm preaching this week on demonic swarms of human-sized locusts. And everyone laughed. How are you serious? Seriously, what are you preaching on? I said, no, I'm, I'm serious, like Revelation chapter 9. And he said, you're Presbyterian, right? And I said, yeah. And they said, well, okay, let's go to the next guy. And it sort of went downhill from there Then when they asked what we wore when we preached and stuff like that. But at any rate, we are looking at the book of Revelation. And this morning we will look at demonic swarms of human-sized locusts. But before we do that, we've got to do like a lot of background. One of the things that makes Revelation difficult to preach, or at least a challenge to preach, is there's so much background that you have to do in each sermon. And so part of the background, if you remember last time I preached, two weeks ago, we started looking at this series of seven trumpet blasts. So you had seven seals, seven trumpet blasts, that's where we are now, and then seven bowls of God's wrath. And just to sort of remind you that each one of those sevens, it's actually the same history that's happening it's just that each time it becomes a little bit more intense. So the seven seals happened, and then now we've, last week we looked at the, four bo- the four, first four trumpets, and the first four trumpets, basically everything that happened in the first four trumpets affected the earth. Right? The water turns to blood, and the, so things fall out of the sky. And the last of the four trumpets was really a recapitulation of the plague of darkness from, from Exodus. And it really serves as a warning because in Exodus, when the plague of darkness happens, you know what's coming next. What's coming next is people are going to die. And it's the same thing as we look at the trumpets this morning. That after the fourth trumpet, there's a warning. It's a plague of darkness hits. And then after that, people are going to start dying. That's what we're going to look at today. Today's a very hard text to look at, by the way. Not just because of the locusts and the big sort of Lord of the Rings horses and that kind of stuff, but because of what it calls us to because of what it calls us to. So just b- before we jump into all of this, let me give you a little bit of background, because I think uh, in order to understand these fantastic parts of Book of Revelation, you need to understand the purpose, but even a little bit more deeply than just the overall purpose. Remember I told you the purpose of the Book of Revelation, generally speaking, is to tell the church that Jesus has won in the past, he will win in the future, and he is winning right now. 
And in particular, the book of Revelation was a letter written to seven churches to persuade them of those same things. Jesus has won in the past, he will win in the future, and he is winning right now. What did he win in the past? Well, he won complete and utter victory over sin and death. That at the cross, Jesus defeated our worst enemy, sin that would separate us from God. And when he rose from the dead, he at that point also had conquered death. And from that minute, new heavens and new earth were starting. And all of creation would be renewed. And so that started then. And in the future, we look forward, Jesus will win. That all, in the future, all of heaven and all earth at some point will be completely and utterly new. But what happens now? When we say Jesus is winning, that's, that's really what's important now, isn't it? Because, I mean, in some sense we look back and we look forward, but what about now? And that's what I want to show you. So what does the church do now with the information I just gave you? On one hand, the church and churches were constantly need to be looking backward. Right? When things get difficult, when things get hard, we look backward. And we look backward to the cross and say, Jesus has accomplished the victory. Jesus has defeated our sin. And we remind ourselves of that. But also as a church, in all churches, we should be looking forward that Jesus will win ultimately. That no matter how hard things are now, no matter how bad things are, that eventually the whole mess will be cleaned up and he will win in the future. But what about the fact that Jesus is winning now? Where does that cause us to look? For most of us, we, the question is, is Jesus winning now in my own life, right? We tend to be very introspective. And we tend to think, what are the struggles that I have? What are the problems that I have? And it's, does the gospel call us to look inward? It does call us to look inward, but mostly the gospel causes us to look outward. In other words, the, the purpose of the book of Revelation is not just to tell us that Jesus has won, will win, and is winning but it's that he has won, will win, and is winning in some certain context. In the context when we look backward and we look forward, but also are we looking outward? You see, in the book of Revelation, we find that the churches in Revelation and the churches that stand for all churches, they actually have a mission. And the question is, how are they doing at their mission? And how does this information about Jesus help them in their mission? And what's the mission of the church? Well, first of all, the church is to be a so that people. If you're a note taker, you'll want to write that down. I got that from a, a guy named, I think it's Michael Goheen, G-O-H-E-E-N, this week. That the church has always been called to be a so that people, and it started all the way back with Abraham. Remember, Adam and Eve sort of blew it in the garden, and shalom was violated, sin came into the world, everything was messed up, and God came and said, I will fix it. And by Genesis chapter 12, he chose one man and his family, and he said, Abraham, I'm calling you so that all the families on earth will be blessed through you, so that you can be a blessing to other people. So he called Abraham so that all the nations would be brought in, and then through Abraham called Israel, and guess what he called Israel for? He said, Israel, I've called you so that the nations can be gathered in. And if you read through the prophets, you read all of these passages where the nations are streaming into Jerusalem because of who Israel is. In other words, because of the law that God had given them, because of all that God had done for them, how they lived their lives, they should be such an attractive people that the nations would want to come in. So Israel was called to be a people so that the nations, the world, could know. In other words, God didn't choose Israel for Israel's sake. He chose Israel so that other people may know how of his greatness. And as we know, Israel failed at that task as well. They failed when they were tribes. They failed when they were a kingdom. They failed when they were dispersed throughout the Middle East. 
And then you have 400 years of silence after the Old Testament and people begin to wonder, is God really serious about redeeming the world? And then along came this guy named Jesus. And what did Jesus do? He reconstituted Israel. He called 12 disciples, all of whom were Jewish, and he told them to go to the lost sheep of whom? Israel. So Israel could be reconstituted, so they again could be a light to the nations, and they eventually became the church. In other words, the church is reconstituted Israel under Jesus. And we exist to be a people so that other people might know the gospel. And when you read the book of Revelation, especially when you get to the, the, the parts that are more fantastic, the parts that are more unbelievable, or the parts that you go, gosh, is this literal or is it symbolic? One of the easiest ways to, to make sense of it is to keep mission in mind. What is our purpose? If our purpose is to be outwardly faced, then how does, how does what I'm reading now affect that? So, for example, remember the, it's a letter written to seven churches originally. And by the way, the whole book of Revelation is a letter to seven churches. It's not just Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. Chapter 2 and chapter 3 address them by name, but the whole thing is supposed to be to them. And so if you remember the problem with the churches is that they were all failing with the mission. At least five of them were failing or floundering, and two of them were really struggling with the mission. And so what do they need to know? How does the book of Revelation help them to be back on mission? A lot of times we look at the book of Revelation and we say, well, it's to comfort the church. Right? All these bad things are going to happen, but that you're going to be okay. You're going to be sealed. And there's part of that that's true. On the other hand, there's part of it, I think, that, that is different and needs to actually push us out from our comfort zone. And that's where the, the word prophecy comes into account. Remember the book of Revelation. Again, is, it says that it's an apocalypse, which means a revealing of the person of Jesus. It's a letter, which means it's a letter. But it's also a prophecy. And what does a prophecy do? In the Old Testament and the New Testament, prophecies sometimes foretell the future. Not all the time, by the way. Sometimes they predict what's going to happen in the future. But all of the time, 100% of the time, what prophecy does is it's a call to action. Whether it tells you something that happened in the past or it tells you something that happened in the future or will happen in the future, nonetheless, it's always a call to action, a call to have more faith or a call to repent or a call to do something. And so, in that sense, if the book of Revelation is prophecy, at some level, it is a call to action for the seven churches and to our church. And so, of course, the question is, how are the seven seals, trumpets, and bowls a call to action? You see, we tend to look at the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, and we try and look and try to figure out the mass, and what does it all mean, and what's all happening here. But if it's prophecy, which John says that it is, it's some kind of call to action. And if you want human beings to be motivated into some kind of action, the easiest thing to do, in my experience, is to involve insects. Right? Most of you, I don't know, there, there might be one or two of you. Um, I grew up in South Florida without air conditioning and so in my house we often had cockroaches and when I say cockroaches I don't mean the little German roaches I mean the big cockroaches that were three four five sometimes maybe six inches long although those are not documented <laughs> and I can remember when I was a kid and, and at least in our house we had a lot of the doors that are panel doors and as a little kid you'd be trotting along and all of a sudden you'd see stick out of a panel door 
two antennae that were several inches long. And I finally figured out if I carried around scissors, at least there'd be a bunch of Helen Keller cockroaches at my house. And then when, the, when you'd see a cockroach in the house, I don't know if you know this from the Pacific Northwest, but I'm warning you in case you ever go south of, of Orlando. When you try and stomp on a cockroach, if you don't hit it square, what will happen is you'll lift up your foot and then it will start flying around the living room. You want to see people move. <laughs> Let a cockroach start flying around the, the, the living room. So if you want to get people moving, you want to motivate them, if you want to frighten them, Involve insects. That's what John does here. Locusts is what happens. But before we even enter into the text, I want to get you in the right mindset. Imagine you're, you're a person, you're, you're a member of the church at Ephesus, and you, know, you could be a man or a woman. Let's say you're a man. You're an engineer at the biggest boat factory in the known world down there, and you're working on, the, on a new, uh, the, the world's biggest boat, you know, the streamliner. It's got twice as many oars as anything else. And you've got three kids, and you travel a lot, and your wife is also very busy at church, and everything seems fine. And then you come to church one Sunday, and John, you, th- this letter is read to you that says you've lost your first love. The church that you think is great, and you've got the programs, and your kids love it there, and Sunday school is great. You've lost your first love. You're off mission. Now, for that person, what would motivate them to be on mission? For you, what would it motivate you to actually be outwardly faced? I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, most people in this room are not particularly outwardly faced, because if we were, every one of you would have a neighbor sitting beside you. And we don't. Church is for us, and hopefully if people come, that's great. What would motivate you to actually start engaging people around you with the gospel? Locusts, I hope. Fire, brimstone, sulfur, massive armies. I think that's what's going on here. Look at the first part here, verse 13. And John says, He says, then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So the the first four trumpets have happened and now there's a transition period. And and the transition, John says, then I looked and heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead saying, woe, woe, woe. Basically, in the Bible, there's two kinds of oracles. One you want, the other you don't. There's oracles of woe, and there's oracles of weal. W-E-A-L. An oracle of weal is an oracle of blessing, meaning you will surely be blessed. An oracle of woe means you will surely be cursed. And whenever you want to emphasize something in the Bible, you say it how many times? Twice. Remember Jesus, when he said something, he'd say, Amen, Amen, and then he would say it. Now, if you really want to say something is, is, is immutable and unchangeable, you say it three times, like, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so these woes, when the eagle says, woe, 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 they are coming definitely. Now, the question is, is the, the bird there, I mean, there's a lot of different questions you could ask about it, but for our purposes, is the bird there actually an eagle or is it a vulture? Because you could translate it either way. And the answer actually depends on where you're sitting. If you're a believer, you see it as an eagle. 
Because in the Old Testament, for those who trust God and ultimately who would trust Jesus, the eagle's a good thing, right? You'll rise up on wings like eagles. Or I remember when I delivered you from Egypt as on eagles' wings. And so the eagle in the Old Testament, for those who believe, is a good thing. On the other hand, the eagle or the vulture in the Old Testament and the New Testament, for those who do not believe, is really a bad thing. Because at the end of the day, whether you call it an eagle or a vulture, it's a carrion eater. And this really hit home to me. If you look at Revelation chapter 19, I've used Revelation chapter 19, the first part for weddings. Right? It's the wedding feast of the Lamb. And it's, it's a beautiful, moving passage. But it never hit me that right after the wedding feast of the Lamb in chapter 19 is the Supper of God. The wedding feast of the Lamb is eaten by those who believe and have been washed in the Lamb's blood. And the Supper of God right after that is those who are eaten by carrion birds, those who didn't believe and have died. It's pretty gruesome. And so when you see this bird of prey flying over saying, whoa, 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 the first question you would probably ask yourself is, who is that to me? Is, he, is that woe for me or is it not? If I'm a follower of Jesus, it's not. Remember chapter 7, we looked at the fact that believers are sealed before the foundation of the world. And they're sealed and their robes are washed white in the blood of the Lamb. That in chapter 5, John heard a lion of the tribe of Judah had conquered and he looked and there was a lamb who was slain. So whatever is happening here, these woes will not come upon believers. And so the question is, well then, upon whom will they fall? Will they fall on unbelievers? Remember, the whole point here is what motivates you to be outwardly focused? What happens next? If you look at... I remember what that said, I'm sure. If you look at verses 9, 1 through 11, you see that in verse 1 it says, And a fifth angel blew his trumpet, and a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions on the earth. Let me skip down to... Verse 7, it says, In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were, were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. Their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like the breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. And their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. And then you have the objects of wrath. Notice in verse 4, it says, They were told, this is the locusts, were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And then finally in verse 11, They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name is Hebrew, in Hebrew is Abaddon, or in Greek he is called Apollyon, which both of those mean some version of destroyer. So there are a couple things we need to point out here is if you notice in verse 1, it says, And the angel blew his trumpet, and a star fell from earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. So when a star falls, at least in the book of Revelation and the book of Isaiah, it's, it's an angel of some type, and it says that he was given the keys to the bottomless pit. The bottomless pit, by the way, is also abyss and is hell. 
But what's more important is to see that five times in this passage, the phrase, it is given, it is given, it was given, it was given, it was given, is used. In other words, God is completely in control of what's happening at the end. Completely. Some places, even where it says, and God allowed this to happen, it really should probably say it's the same word as it was given. In other words, God is not passive in any of it. Remember in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus is the one himself who holds the keys to death and Hades, and now he has turned the keys over to this one called Abaddon, who now releases these demonic locusts from hell. And by the way, the locusts, it, it's symbolic, because notice John says over and over again, he doesn't say that they were literally, he didn't say they were literally like horses. He said they were like horses, they looked like crowns of gold, they looked like human faces. He's, he's having a vision that he's trying to describe. And the point here is not whether or not John is being literal. And we spend all of our time getting sort of deep in the weeds about, you know, is this, what is this? Is this Apache helicopters? Or is it, you know, is it this or is it that? And what exactly literally is this? It does have some connection to the Old Testament because God oftentimes when he wants to bring about judgment, he brings it about by sending locusts on people. Joel chapter 2, very specifically. But what's more important here, I think, is the objects of this plague of locusts. In verse 4, notice it says, And they were told, the locusts were told, not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So they're told not to eat what locusts usually eat, which is anything green and not moving. But they were told to harm only those who do not have the seal of God upon their foreheads. They are specifically sent to target those who do not believe. Now, if you're a Christian, are you sitting there going, whew, dodged a bullet on that one. The question is, if Christians are not the ones who are targeted by these locusts, then why do we even have this information to begin with? Why does it matter? Is it any comfort to know that you won't be targeted, but everyone else is? I think the point here is think about all of your friends, all of your neighbors, whether this is literal or not literal, whether it's Apache helicopters or anything else, is it a good thing or a bad thing what's happening here? It's a horrifying thing, I hope. And those who do not know Jesus either are experiencing it now at some level or will experience it in the future or both. And the question is, do you care? If it's not going to affect you, but it's going to affect everyone else, do you care? Does it motivate you to mission? Did you notice what these locusts do, by the way? They give these people who don't have the seal of God on their forehead. By the way, in the book of Revelation, everyone has some seal on their forehead. You either have the seal of God or you have the seal of Satan, but you don't have nothing. So everyone who does not have the seal of God will experience torment at the hands of the locusts. Which that's interesting too. Did you notice it said the torment will be so bad that people will beg for death but it will not come upon them. It's almost as if these locusts are coming to give people who don't believe just a, a taste of hell. Because what hell is, is torment eternally. What hell is, is to be separated from God eternally. What hell is, is to go your own way eternally. And the question is, when you look at your friends and neighbors and the people do you work with, do you think about that? Whatever is happening here in this passage with the locusts is horrible. And if you really believed that that could possibly come upon those that you cared about who didn't know Jesus, what would that motivate you to do? 
Would it move you? Would it move you to tell them? Would it move you to invite them? The response is up to them. The question is, is the church on mission? Most churches are not. And the question is, will we be on mission? So the locusts come to torment. And the question is, could it get worse than this? You know, the king of hell, by the way, most people think that's Satan himself. And you will see in the necks and the bowls of God's wrath that when Satan gets cast down, he's pretty upset. But notice the transition in verse 12. It says, the first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. So you, so you have this vision of hordes of demonic, human-sized locusts that are tormenting people for five months, which, by the way, that, we don't know if that's literally or just for a season. It happens to be the lifespan of a, of a grasshopper or a locust. But you think, could, could there be anything worse than demonic locusts torturing people for, for a season? And to the extent that people wanted to die. And unfortunately, the answer is yes. John says the first woe had passed, the, the fifth trumpet. There's still two more to go. Have your attention yet? Notice what he says. In verses 13... He says, Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, the year, were released to kill a third of mankind. So you have four angels. Remember before, they're in the seals, there were four angels who were holding back at the four corners of the earth, holding back destructive winds. Is it the same ones? Might be. But they're being released. But I also wanted to point out to you again God's sovereignty. That they weren't released at any time. They were released at the precise minute, hour, day, month, year that God had decided that they had been released. Is it right now? I don't know. It could be tomorrow. But they will be released. And how bad is it? If you thought demonic swarms of locusts for five months was bad, imagine yourself again in Ephesus or someplace and as you listen to the next part in 16, it says the number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breast, breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. Fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. And by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. You see, the Euphrates was the border of Israel. It was eventually the border of the Roman Empire. And they would constantly be worried about what might come across that border to invade them. Namely, the Romans were afraid of the Parthians, who had rode horses and they had breastplates and all of this kind of stuff. And the only thing, Rome was so big, the only thing that could beat Rome would be an army bigger than theirs. And can you find an army bigger than Rome's? Well, did you notice how big this army was? He says that, that when they were released, he says the number of mounted troops was twice... 10,000 times 10,000. Here's how big it was. 10,000 times 10,000 in the book of Revelation, or a myriad times a myriad, equals infinity. Here's how big the army is. The army is two times infinity. Can you count that high? Can anyone besides Chuck Norris? You can't. John is saying this, this army is so big, it's not even manageable. 
It's, it's so big that it is, it is two times infinity. Remember when you were a kid and you get an argument and go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, infinity, 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 infinity. You would do that. John is saying that's how big it is. The coming wrath that is coming upon mankind. And by these plagues. So it, and is it demonic horses and, and all of this kind of stuff? Probably it's symbolic because he says by these three plagues, basically fire and sulfur and smoke, a third of mankind is killed. And the imagery there, by the way, is... We don't, I don't have time. I mean, it would take weeks to go through all the imagery just in this passage, but it's from Sodom and Gomorrah, where God brought final judgment upon those in Sodom. And so you would think, now you, you've had demonic hordes of locusts, and now you've had these huge, like, ring-raved horse army things that are huge, that are killing a third of humankind. If you knew that they were coming and would kill a third of humankind, and you thought of your friends, neighbors, family, co-workers, everyone around us, would that motivate you to tell them? Would that motivate you to mission? Or would you just be able to drive back and forth from your house to Sunday school, or back and forth from your house to do whatever you do with church? You see, if church is not about mission, then it really is about nothing. And so you'd think, okay, all of these things happen, but unless there's someone there to explain to the unbelievers actually what's happening, how will they know? Unless Christians are actually involved with their lives in the midst of all this stuff, they won't, how can they interpret the signs of the times? And you would think that, well, when all these things happen, people will most certainly repent, will they not? Will they, they'll turn and what do we learn from this passage? And this is as things come to the end. It says they don't. Notice what comes next. Verses 20 through 21. He says the rest of mankind who are left, who are not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. You see, part of the problem here, the big problem here, is idolatry. In other words, if you're here and you're a Christian, or you're here and you're not a Christian, and someone, you may know enough to say, what's the problem? What is Christianity all about? And you say, well, people are sinners. Sin isn't the only problem that you have and that I have, or at least one aspect of sin. You see, we tend to think of sin in terms of whether or not we've been good or whether or not we've been bad. And biblically speaking, sin is more often put in terms of who you love and who you don't love. Who you prioritize and who you don't prioritize. Why didn't all these people repent after they saw all these horrible things happen? It was because they loved something else more than they loved Jesus. And that's what idolatry is at the end of the day. This comes, I've summarized these from some Tim Keller stuff. What is idolatry? It's something besides Jesus. We need to be happy. Something more important to your heart than God. Something that enslaves your heart. So anything. So, so in other words, it's not necessarily a question of whether you're doing right or you're doing wrong. Whether you're behaving morally or immorally. Do you love something else more than you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus at all? Is there something else that, that captures your affections more than God himself does? And if you... Have a, if you're in a growth group and you have the growth group homework, you can find that online. Um, you're going to be talking a lot about idolatry in your growth groups this week, which you, know, you might want to skip it, to be honest with you. <laughs> it could be rough. But, um, so, for example, it, 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 
idolatry, we tend to think of just worshipping wood and stone and things like that. But what, for example, this is just an example from Keller. If, what if your, your idolatry is power? Having power, having, having just power. How would you know that? Well, for one, your greatest nightmare would be humiliation. Is that your greatest nightmare? People around you often feel used. Your biggest problem emotion is anger. Any of you guys have an anger problem? I do sometimes. It's because I want to be in control. What if it's comfort? Do you love comfort more than you love God? Comfort, you know, your greatest nightmare is having demands put upon you. People around you feel neglected and your biggest problem emotion is boredom. You see, one of the reasons I hate going through lists of idols is because every single one of them I fall short on. I'm often bored. I imagine people around me feel neglected all the time and I certainly am tired of all the demands. You see how that works? And so for the Christian, as well as the person who is not a Christian, idolatry is one of our biggest problems. And so what's the call to action here besides being outwardly faced, besides taking the gospel to those around us? I mean, and by the way, just by way of low-hanging fruit, Jamie announced it at the beginning. We've got all those door knockers. Inviting kids to VBS counts too. That's pretty easy. So what does a Christian have to do with idolatry? Are you constantly looking and trying to identify the idols of your heart and saying, Jesus, I need to put aside my idol of comfort. I need to put aside my idol of power, my idol of control, and I need you to be in control. I need you to be my comfort. I need you to be the one who is over all of my life. The Christian needs to do that. On the other hand, what does the non-Christian have to do? The person who's not a believer? You have to do the same thing. I mean, ask yourself, are you trying to save yourself? Are you trying to, do, you, do, you, do you idolize power? Do you idolize glory? Do you idolize uh, the way people think of you? Because if you do, remember idols enslave. The irony of this whole passage is when it comes to the end, the very demons that are being worshipped, the very demons that are being idolized, are the same ones that are attacking the people. In other words, your idols don't love you. An idol can't hold you. An idol can't care for you. And certainly an idol can't die for your sins. The only thing an idol does is damage you. And so if you're a Christian, are you purging them? If you're not a Christian, are you, have you ever considered putting aside your idols in order to embrace Jesus? You see, at the end of the day, our church and every church is all, should be all about mission, all about being outwardly faced. And you hear that from me all the time, but I think the scripture teaches us that. Let me close with this. What's over my desk, many of you know I have a sermon workbench on my desk. And Charles Spurgeon is probably my favorite preacher of all time. And so every time I'm working on a sermon, every time I look up, here's what I see is what's in front of your eyes right now. And Spurgeon says, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees. Is that the attitude of, of our church? Is that your attitude? That if people are going to perish, they will perish after we have done every single thing we can to keep them from perishing. They will perish with our arms around their knees if they continue to go. Think about that. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray at this time that you would, you would awaken our church to mission. That you would awaken our church, not just missions, you know, going overseas, but mission all around us, bearing witness to the gospel of Jesus, to those all around us who ultimately will experience, if not your wrath here and now, they will experience your wrath in the future and it will be forever. And I pray that you would give us a heart to see those people come to know Jesus.
a heart to see them drawn in like the nations, that they might all be worshipers, that every tongue, tribe, and nation. Father, I pray that would happen in this very place, that this church would be transformed by the gospel. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen and amen.